Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to the words read for us uh, from Matthew chapter 1. Would you turn there, please? We're at the first page of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. If you turn there, if you'd like to use the Bible provided for you, that's page 807. Page 807. As you're turning there, remind you we are in a, a series that we are calling a Christmas Reformation. Reformation has the idea of change. It has the idea of change by the Lord. And sometimes that change is drastic in nature. Sometimes God changes our lives in very subtle ways. It's almost imperceptible day by day. He's working in our lives. But then there are times when God ordains that he is going to interrupt our lives. Someone has said, again, I've told you, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans, right? <laughs> tell him your plans. Because God has his plan, and his plan is on his schedule. And so sometimes our lives are interrupted. Our plans are interrupted, but when God interrupts our lives... The schedule is absolutely perfect, whether we can see that or not. And we've been looking at some examples of lives interrupted by the birth of Christ. Two weeks ago, we saw how Zacharias, his wife Elizabeth, their lives were interrupted in their old age. They had their retirement plans. Uh, they thought they were needing to perhaps prepare for their retirement home, they didn't know they were needing to add a nursery onto their house because God was giving to them the gift of the baby John. As we know, John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Lives were interrupted there, but God was doing something awesome and amazing. Last week, Joe brought a tremendous message as he talked to us about how Mary's life was certainly interrupted. Just as a young teenage girl, whole life ahead of her, God had an incredible plan so hard for her to be able to accept, to walk through that. But through that, God was bringing the amazing, amazing gift of his son through the virgin birth. Now this morning, I want us to turn to the text that the Estep family read for us as we had the lighting of the candle. And it's going to be another look at some interrupted lives that are here in the Christmas story. You know, sometimes we think the Christmas story is all nice and neat. And uh, we think about the, the beauty of some of the pageants we see, especially the, the children's programs. Aren't the children's programs just the greatest, you know? I, I'm always, I don't know how I feel sometimes for the adults that up here, they, they, as we have our Christmas at West Park, they practice 12, 13, 14 songs, and they just give hours and hours and hours, and then the boys and girls come up here just for a few minutes and steal the whole show. You ever seen that? It's, it's amazing. But you know, sometimes uh, even uh, children's Christmas pageants can show that there can be, a, there can be some interruption. I don't know if you saw East Tennessee made the news this week. Did you not see this? And uh, up in White Pine, beautiful, beautiful, quaint little nativity scene where the boys and girls and everything started out okay. And here's the picture's a little blurry. It was taken. There's, there's, aren't those that great? 
You have Joseph, Mary, you have the angel, and you have the little shepherd girl there. Well, then, in a few minutes, the little shepherd girl decided that she really did want to adore the baby Jesus. So she just picked him up. She picked it up and right out of the, right out of the manger, and she starts to walk off with him. <laughs> I'd like to have shown you the video, but all, it had news people and all of it. And I didn't want the news people, they so just took them out. Well, here's the little shepherd girl comes to get the baby Jesus, and guess what? Mary's not having it, okay? <laughs> Mary ain't having it. <laughs> she does a smackdown on this. <laughs> Gets her in one of those World Federation headlocks. Get baby Jesus back. That's the way we do it in East Tennessee. That's <laughs> now, that's a Christmas pageant. <laughs> East Tennessee style, right? <laughs> oh, my word. People, that went all over the news. Yeah, it went all over the country. People in East Tennessee going, so what? <laughs> <laughs> Happens every year. <laughs> well, the reality, uh, you know, the story of Christmas, the story of the birth of Lord Jesus, is a story of struggle. It is really a story of struggle. It's a beautiful story. It's a gracious story. It's a story, really, of amazing grace, isn't it? But let me tell you also, take another look. The story of Jesus' birth, the story of amazing grace, is a story of a messy grace. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. This amazing grace of the gift of Jesus is a messy grace to those who were to be his parents. And those who are followers of Jesus are going to find out that his amazing grace in our lives is sometimes messy grace as well. Now I want us to begin as we see the New Testament begin. How does the New Testament begin? The New Testament begins with the ancestry of Jesus. And it is an ancestry of messy grace. And so notice there's amazing grace, though, even in this messy genealogy. It is a messy genealogy. Once you take a look at it, the very first verse of the New Testament says this, the very first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew connects Jesus Christ and connects the New Testament, the New Covenant, immediately with David and Abraham, because David and Abraham represent two critical covenants so precious to the Jewish people. David is the covenant that has to do with kingship, because God made a covenant with David that out of his line, from his line, would come the one who would be the great king. 
the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And so immediately, in the very first words of the New Testament, Matthew connects for Jewish people Jesus with the covenant made to David. But then he also connects him with Abraham because God made a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant God made with Abraham was that he would make of Abraham a great nation, even though he and his wife were childless. He said, I will make of you a great nation. And then he said, nations will be blessed through you. I will give to you the land that I promise you I will give you this land. And from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so immediately the New Testament starts with Jesus and his genealogy connecting him with the covenant of David, the kingship covenant, and the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of the blessings of God through the Jewish people to the ends of the earth. And then notice, 42 generations are listed in groups of 14. Three groups of 14. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David until the Jewish people are carried into captivity in Babylon. 14 generations from the deportation, the being carried into Babylon until the birth of Christ. Three groups of 14 generations. This is the family tree of Jesus. And I want to tell you what a crooked tree it is. This is a crooked family tree, but guess what? It's a family tree of grace. Anybody here got a family tree that's just not straight arrow? <laughs> right. It's a genealogy of grace. Now notice, Jesus was a descendant. He was a descendant of Abraham. He's of the people of Abraham. Who was Abraham? Abraham was a pagan idolater. That's who Abraham was. He was a pagan idolater when God found him and revealed himself to him. That's who Abraham was. Jesus was a descendant of Jacob. Who was Jacob? The master manipulator of all time. You'd never think about shaking hands with him unless you counted your fingers afterward. You couldn't trust Jacob. Ancestor of Jesus. Jesus is of the people of Abraham. He's of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. Who's Judah? Judah is a cruel and immoral man. That's who Judah is. But God's sovereign grace is working through his life. Jesus is descended from the people of Abraham. He's descended from the tribe of Judah. He's descended from the family of David. Who's David? David is an adulterer and a murderer. But God's grace is greater than all sin, right? God's grace abounded in this man's life and even through him 
the genealogy of grace is coming down. Christ will come through this genealogy. There are other names that are mentioned here in chapter 1. And other names, some of the most ungodly people that you can imagine are in the genealogy of Jesus. But it's all God's grace at work. See, God's grace works in messy places. God doesn't require perfect places to carry out his perfect plan. It's a genealogy of grace. Notice, this genealogy is different from just about any other Jewish genealogy, perhaps any other Jewish genealogy ever recorded. Do you know why? It includes the names of four women. Women were never named in the genealogies. There's always the names of the fathers, the patriarchs, but this includes the names of four women in Jesus' genealogy, and I mean these four women. What women were you talking about? Verse 3, Tamar is mentioned. Tamar, who seduced her own father-in-law. Verse 5, Rahab. Who's Rahab? She is a Canaanite prostitute. Lives in Jericho. And shows mercy to the two spies of the people of Israel. Verse 5, you have Ruth. Who's Ruth? She's not even Jewish at all either. She's a Moabitess. Uh, One of the great enemies, the people of Moab. But she's brought into the genealogy of the Messiah. Then we have... Her not named mentioned, but verse 6 says the wife of Uriah. Do you see that? Verse 6 says the wife, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is Bathsheba. Bathsheba, yes, Bathsheba of the bath, okay? (laughs) Taken by David, forced upon by David. An illegitimate child is conceived and David murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to cover up the sordid affair. Genealogy of Jesus. Jesus' genealogy is truly a genealogy of grace. <laughs> there, there, is, there is goodness in this genealogy, but there's a lot that... To say it's not good would be the understatement of all time. I see three lessons here I want to share with you about this. Three lessons of amazing, messy grace. The first lesson is this. Jesus came through the morally outcast. Jesus came through. Jesus himself, the Son of God, the perfect Holy Son of God came to this earth and was born. He came through the genealogy of the morally outcast. He himself, through the virgin birth, being sinless, but his genealogy through his mother and through his also his adopted father, and this is the genealogy of Joseph. Luke gives us the genealogy of Mary. 
But Jesus came through the morally outcast, people who spiritually were far from God, even the ethnically outcast. Jesus' family tree included people who were far from God and God brought them near by His grace. Number two, not only did Jesus come through the morally outcast, Jesus came for the morally outcast. He came to save His people. Guess who His people are and who they are not? His people are not the righteous. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call whom? Sinners to repentance. Righteous people don't need a Savior. Godly people don't need someone to make them godly because they've done it on their own. Jesus didn't come for those people. His people weren't even like those people. He came for sinful people. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the what? The lost. If you feel lost today, if you feel lost, you are a candidate for grace. You are not far from the kingdom of God because the king came for you. It's the people who feel no guilt for their sin. People who feel no need of redeeming grace. People who feel no need of the mercy of God who are so far from God, it's not even understandable. But those who feel their sin, they're not far from the kingdom of God. There's hope, right? If you know and you feel messed up, if you're here today, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, if you feel used and messed up, you are a candidate for grace this very morning. You're the very people that Jesus came from. And you're the very people that Jesus came for. Here's a third, third application. God's grace, we see in this, God's grace is present and sufficient in every generation and in every situation. If you go back and read the stories of the genealogy of Jesus, 42 generations, about 1,800 to 19 years, it is a royal mess. It, it, is, it, is, it is filled with every kind of situation. And yet God's grace is present and sufficient in all those situations, in every situation. Friend, whatever kind of messy situation we are in, God's grace is present and God's grace is sufficient. Isn't that wonderful? Now, certainly we see that displayed in the life of Joseph. So now let's bring it to Joseph. Talk about a messy situation. Here we see amazing grace in a messy situation. This is a messy situation. What a mess. 
Put yourself in this story. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that's a mess. That is a mess. In a little backwoods town of 300 people, this is an incredible, terrible mess. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Make sure you understand what that means. It does not mean he was engaged to her. Betrothed meant that you were already pledged. And in the eyes of the law, it was as if you had already been married. That's the reason you'll notice verse 19. What is Joseph called? He's called Mary's husband. Even though they have not yet had the wedding ceremony and the marriage has not been consummated in the eyes of the law, they are husband and wife. She is his betrothed. And, G- and Joseph feels what? He feels betrayed. He feels betrayed. Mary's pregnant. Mary. Mary's pregnant. She's been unfaithful to him. And, and let's, just, let's just open it up. Now, if you're Joseph, you sing now. And she's also trying to blame this on whom? God, oh yeah, sure, that, that just happens all the time. So he's not only been betrayed by his betrothed, but she's also seems to be pinning the blame on God. Either this is incredible wicked sin or my betrothed one has lost her mind. What has happened here? And he was going to be facing public humiliation. Unspeakable humiliation. But look closer and I want you to look deeper. And what you're going to see in this mess, listen, before the angel even shows up, there's God's grace. Notice what? You see God's grace in Joseph. You see the grace of God in him. Where do you see it? Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This man who knows he's been betrayed by the one who is his pledged wife, who is making these ridiculous statements about how she has conceived, yet in him he is a just man. He is a merciful man because of God in his life. And he's unwilling, he's unwilling to put her to shame. That, that means one of two things. Either to publicly disown her. To publicly renounce her. To publicly call out the reality of her infidelity. Or perhaps even 
terrible as it can be imagined, her public execution. Perhaps the fact that she was expecting would have been the only deliverance for her life. But he can't do that. Why? God's grace is in his heart. In the messiest of situations, in the most unimaginable, absolutely dumbfounding situations, folks, if you're a Christian, you still have grace, right? You still have the resource of grace. You don't have to go postal. You don't have to go mean and cruel. You don't have to go vindictive. You don't have to go after someone. Not if you're a Christian, a just and righteous person. You can take the high road. God's grace in Joseph. But then notice God's grace for Joseph. (laughs) That wasn't enough. He's going to need more for what God has planned. God's grace for Joseph. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord gives Joseph the grace to cope with what he can't comprehend. Now, do you think after that dream, do you think after what the angel told him, that Joseph got up and said, well, that makes perfect sense. I totally get that. Oh, yeah. No. You see, God gives us grace to cope with what we can't comprehend. He gives us grace to trust Him even when we cannot trace Him. And that's what was given to Joseph. He was given grace. Now, there's a couple of powerful lessons from Joseph's life here, if I might briefly share with you about God's messy grace. Let me just share these couple of things with you. Number one, you see here that God is present in my situation. God is present. It is impossible for God not to be present. Number one, why? Because he in his nature is what? Omnipresent. But God is always present, not just because of His nature, but also because of His promise to every one of His children. What did He promise? I will never what? Never leave you. I will never forsake you. It is impossible for a child of God to be truly alone. God is here. God is here. He is present in my situation he is present and his grace because he is present is available i hope you understand church family that when you cry out for god's grace never forget 
what you're crying out for is God Himself. Because He's the God of all grace. Grace is not some quality that God gives you in a container in heaven. Oh, you need grace? You're praying for grace? Hey, Gabriel, get a bucket. No. Where does the grace come from? Grace is God Himself. He is the grace. And so because God is present in every situation, His grace is available in every situation. But when we fail to avail ourselves of God's grace, we become candidates for bitterness. See, the Bible says, be very careful, Hebrews 12, the Bible says, lest any of you fail of the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean lose your salvation. It means to fail to receive to yourself the grace for the situation you're in. Beware lest any root of bitterness. What's bitterness mean? Bitterness means to cut. It means when you've been hurt, when you've been cut to the quick, when somebody has hurt you, that cut, if it is not taken to God for His grace, that cut can become infected with our own sinful disposition. And then it's now growing because bitterness is a very, very certain kind of sin. The Bible says it's a root of bitterness. It's hidden. You don't see it. And it's growing up in you, but eventually many will be defiled. It goes back to a hurt, a cut. It doesn't mean that somebody didn't hurt you. Maybe they did hurt you. It doesn't mean that you were wrong and they were right. Maybe they were completely wrong and they hurt you. But where did you take your hurt? When you take your hurt to God, He... He will, his good grace will poison that root of bitterness. Oh, he'll sock it to it. So that you're not troubled and others aren't defiled. That's what God says about his availing grace. You see, folks, listen. You have to ask yourself. When it comes to situations that you know you may be right, maybe you've been hurt, you've got to ask yourself something. Do you want to be proven right, or do you want to be shown to be righteous? Which do you want to be? Some people would rather be more right than righteous. Because it is the glory of a man or a woman to pass over a transgression. You want to be... Proven to be right? Or would you say no? With God's grace, I want to be righteous in this. I want to do right. You see, when we allow our messy situations to get into our heart and we don't go to the grace of God, we poison our own soul. We poison the own well of our life. We, we pull our own house down. We burn our own house up. True story. Man had a large amount of acreage 
out in the West. And he it was a ranch, a ranch. And he decided he wanted to build his dream home on that ranch. And so he found the place. He got the plans. One day he was out riding his horse across his ranch. He discovered some incredible, beautiful gray stones scattered around a certain area, having beautiful black lines running through the stones. And he said, those are just what I need. Those are, that's what I need for my fireplace, the showpiece of the whole house. And so he had the house built around this beautiful fireplace. Called his friends from far and near to come the first night that he opened up the house and then came to the great moment when he lighted the first fire in the fireplace. And guess what? The thing went up like a torch. Burnt down his beautiful house. Why? Because the black lines in the gray stones were oil deposits. The fuel for the fire was right there in his fireplace. Folks, that's what bitterness is. Oh, you may get good and angry. You get warm, get hot over it. You'll burn your life up. You'll burn your life up unless you turn and say, you know, I'm not going to become bitter. You know why you can say, I don't want, I'm not going to become bitter? Not because you're great, <laughs> but because you know that God has something better for you. You see, you don't become bitter when you know you're really not out of God's control. God knows what's going on. God's with you. He's got you in His hand. So things aren't out of control. My God is here. There must be something better because He's present in my situation. That means He has a plan for my situation. Like Joseph. Joseph had a present messy predicament. I mean, this is as messy as it can get. But guess what that messy predicament was? It was God's master plan. That messy predicament was God's master plan. Look at verse 22. All this took place. What? This mess? Well, God's not within 40 miles of this. No. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, this is Isaiah 7, verse 14. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Prophecy being fulfilled when it was just pre-filled in the life of Isaiah the prophet and Ahaz the wicked king. But it's fulfilled in the coming birth of the king. Behold, the virgin, not just a virgin... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Backwater town, 300 people, pregnant teenage girl. A betrayed spouse. And this is the master plan for the birth of God with us. 
Yeah. God's ways are not our ways, are they? How inscrutable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. As high as the heavens above us are his thoughts above our thoughts. But they are such gracious thoughts that down in the dunghill of our life, God is doing something beautiful. God's gave Joseph, Joseph amazing grace in a messy situation. And you know what the result was? Joseph was enabled by amazing grace to make a messy decision. <laughs> he had to make a decision, but it was the right decision. Look at verses 24 and 25. God gave him what he needed in his mess so he could make in that mess the decision he needed to make. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Notice she's his wife. He's her husband. They're betrothed, but they're husband and wife. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he, Joseph, he adopted him. This child, not his. This child which would cause him to be humiliated by his friends, not because of his son, but because what would be thought about his son. And what will be considered dishonor all of his life, he chose to adopt this boy and call his name what? Jesus, the name God had given to him. What was given to Joseph? He was given grace to believe, accepting God's word. What is that? What is believing? First of all, it's accepting God's word. I don't understand it. I don't comprehend it. But God says it, and for me, that what? Settles it. I don't understand it. How many of you believe things you don't understand? Oh, come on. You know you do. You tell me how you understand that a brown cow eats green grass and gives you white milk. You tell me how you understand that, but you drink milk. You tell me how you understand that water going over turbines in a dam is captured, that power, and formed into a current that runs through lines into your house. You don't understand that, but you don't stand around in the dark either. You flip the switch. We don't understand everything God's doing, but we can believe his word, right? Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will not pass away. Not one jot, not one tittle. It'll all be fulfilled. It's forever settled in heaven. I will trust the word of God even when I don't understand what the God of the word is doing. He was given grace to believe God's word and he was given grace to behave according to God's word. Not just believe it in his mind because if he believes what this angel has said, he's got to do something. What's he got to do? He's got to take Mary as his wife. He's got to decide that he will raise this boy as his own son. 
He has got to behave according to his beliefs. And he's given grace, not just for faith, but faith that truly shows itself in what? Works. This is Joseph's victory. This is the victory right here. Here's the battle in Joseph's life. It all came up to this moment. What are you going to do when you don't understand a thing that you've been told in the Bible? You don't understand a thing that God has said to you, but you know he said it and you know he's your God. Now, what are you going to do? That's the crossroad moment in your life. You see, what was given Joseph is this. Listen carefully. He was not given the gift of understanding it all. He was given the gift to stand under it all. To stand under the will of God. To stand under the word of God. That's the gift that he was given. My friends, many times, the greatest victory you'll ever have in your life will be the victory when you still don't understand what's going on. You don't comprehend it, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. But the great victory is not that you understand everything, but you have determined by God's grace you will stand under. You will stand under His Word, and you will stand under His will, and you will believe and obey. This time of year, for the last almost 19 years, I go back to Christmas Eve service, 1999. I was staying right here. And while I was conducting that Christmas Eve service out of the blue, I started slurring my words. Things weren't coming out quite correctly. Some of you here might remember that. That's 18 years ago this month. Thought, what in the world is going on? I don't want people to think I've gotten in the communion juice or something. What in the world is happening? Where's the pastor been? What, what kind of Christmas party? So I tried to cover up. It came and went for a few weeks, but you know it got worse and worse and worse and finally to a point that for nine months, nine months, I could not speak here. I couldn't teach class. I couldn't lead a prayer group. I couldn't be in staff meeting. I couldn't read Bible stories to my children. And I called out, and I called out, and I called out to God, and I want to tell you what I got back. Silence. But let me tell you what I've learned. God's silence is not God's absence. Amen? I heard nothing. But I tell you what I was enabled to do by God's grace, the glory to him alone, is to say, even though I can't say it, and I can't teach it, and I can't share it, I know my God is real, and his word is real, and he will not forsake me, and he lives, and I will stand under 
whether I ever understand. One day, man gave me perhaps the greatest gift I've ever been given in 37 years of ministry. In the midst of all of that, in the darkness, and not understanding, he put his hand on me right over here. He said, I need to tell you something. The Lord's given me something to tell you. He put his hand on me. And he said, you're preaching the greatest sermons you've ever preached. What was I not doing? Preaching. Nothing. Just stand there. Hardest place to be, here. And you know what? The most wonderful thing I found out was, it was not about me. Guess what the most horrible thing I found out was? <laughs> it was not about me. <laughs> Church grew. Offerings went up. People still getting saved. I was hoping, I don't want them to figure this out, you know? <laughs> it wasn't about me. But the brother touched me and he said, you are preaching. Your actions are preaching. You're hurting. You don't understand. We see it on your face. But you still are standing firm. I give glory to God for that. Out of this amazing grace, this messy grace, God gave his gift to the world. What? What did he give? In this story, what came out of this story? What could come out of a mess like this? Here's what came out of it. Notice these names. Gracious names of the Son of God. The Christ came. That's his messianic name. The anointed one came. It's his messianic name. Anointed one. He's Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. He, who is anointed? Prophets priests and kings. That's who was anointed. Who is the Christ? He is our anointed prophet. He is our anointed priest. He is our anointed king, right? That's what came out of this mess. Christ. Jesus came out of this mess. That's his missional name. You will call his name Jesus. Jesus is Hebrew. Yeshua. Joshua. What does it mean? Jehovah is salvation. Call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. He will be God's sacrifice. He will be our substitute. That's who this child is. Jehovah, our salvation. And he is Emmanuel. That's his majestic name. Emmanuel means what? God with us. God with us. By the virgin birth, Emmanuel, incarnate God with us. And folks, listen to me. For every believer in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, God indwelling us. He's with us always. Beautiful names, right? For a beautiful child who was the beauty of God's salvation for hopeless, helpless sinners like you and me.